Hello and welcome to Counterculture. I'm Peter Whittle. Now, here we are in the latest of our discussions on the coronavirus pandemic. And tonight we're going to be particularly discussing America, the American response to the pandemic, how it's being handled by President Trump, and indeed what that response tells us about American culture now, and indeed going forward into the future, what changes, if any, we can expect to see. Uh, with me to discuss this, I've got a great panel. Uh, first of all, John O'Sullivan, who's joining us from Budapest. John O'Sullivan is president of the Danube Institute. He is editor-at-large of the National Review and indeed was a special advisor to Margaret Thatcher. Andrew Clavin, who's joining us from Los Angeles, is host of The Andrew Clavin Show on The Daily Wire. He is an award-winning author and some of his books have been made into very successful Hollywood movies. And also Rave Hadelmanku from the New Culture Forum, who is an historian and commentator. Thank you very much for joining us, uh, gentlemen, tonight. Um, I would like to start with quite a broad question, if I could, please, Andrew. Um, we've been discussing here a bit about, you know, what's the response to the pandemic has shown about British culture. Has it been, if you like, a typically British response or not? Would you say that the response in America has been a typically American one, whatever that might be? <laughs> well, it depends uh, what you're looking at. It's been typically American in the sense that we're tremendously divided. Uh, we have people on the right who feel that they're uh, civil liberties have been completely overwhelmed by the emergency powers of the state and people on the left who feel that we should never leave our homes ever again uh, and we're all going to die if we pop our heads up. So those two sides are uh, at daggers drawn. We have an amazingly different response from our president, which hasn't been properly appreciated in my opinion, which is that this is the first true emergency of, of my lifetime that I can remember in which the federal government has not tried to expand its powers. I don't know whether Donald Trump uh, can spell federalism, but he is actually operating on our very uh, cherished federalist tradition, which is that our states should be allowed to govern themselves. And he has done that. He has refused the pressure. The, pre the press has done nothing but call him an authoritarian and a fascist and a Nazi. And yet it's the press that has been urging him to take more power. And Trump, who has been saying, no, I cherish the Constitution. I'm going to let the federal, gov the federal uh, governments uh, fend for themselves and has let the governors largely make up their own minds, which has led to in the left wing Democrat states, a lot of overreach, a lot of people uh, crushing civil liberties and keeping everything closed. And on the right, it's led to a lot of people like in Texas uh, opening their governments uh, early and trying to get people back to work. So I would say typically American in the sense very we're very divided. Is that a sort of picture you would recognize as well, John? Well, I recognize it as being happening in America, sure. I mean, my own view would be a mixture of the two. I, I myself tend to think that we should probably obey the rules, wear masks, stay at home mostly for the moment, although I'll slightly qualify that. Um, but at the same time, I find it unnerving that more people in Europe don't feel a bit angry and upset about the, uh, the restrictions on their civil liberties. Although I don't approve of people turning up with guns at the Michigan um, central government, 
um, I nonetheless think it's a good thing there are some people who feel strongly in our society about civil liberties and about normal life. And, and so I was slightly heartened by that. Here it's very different really. I would say we've had strong self-discipline among the Hungarians. And by the way, a friend of mine in Italy says the same about Italians, which might be more surprising. But And the strong self-discipline has meant that really the rules have been quite easy, not to break, but to bend slightly. So here in Budapest, a lot of um, people exercise walking, as we call it, but it just means walking, but they're also sitting down on park benches, moving about in family groups or in groups of two, and the police don't seem to bother that. They only intervene, as far as I can see, um, unlike England, which where the police are no longer seem so wonderful. They only intervene here in Budapest um, when there's sort of groups of six or seven youths making a bit of a fuss, and then they tell them to, you know, separate out into smaller groups and to keep um, six meters, um, sorry, two meters apart. Now, so it's really a, quite an easygoing application of the rules here, but the rules were imposed early, and um, they seem to have been fairly effective. I mean, Rafe, would you say that, you know, America now, because of the, you know, Andrew, talked about the division there, but we have seen protests and what have you. Uh, anything like that has, you know, just simply not happened here. Uh, would you say that America is now, you know, the most liberty-loving country, whereas maybe once we thought that we were here in oh, Britain? Abs absolutely. Well, on the same lines, I, I think it's remarkable that America and Britain now find themselves in the situation where they've uh, committed economic suicide in the short term, uh, despite being, you know, the two nations that forged the modern world, the two most important nations with more scientific Nobel Prizes than anywhere in the world, and that this was so badly manhandled. But what it has exposed to me is what we all knew for some time, that America is the guardian of English liberty, of those principles yeah, yeah. laid out in Magna Carta and in the Glorious Revolution, all those principles which we espoused, every true-born Englishman uh, held to his heart, are now to be found in America, a land, of course, created by the English. You know, the the um, founding fathers were English, after all. As Flanders and Swan said, you know, Englishmen getting rid of a German king. Um, and so it is that land of liberty still. Uh, but yet what it's also shown, I think, is how dysfunctional the relationships are in America between the federal government and the states and how broken the system is. Trump, of course, is getting a lot of flack uh, because of his personality but this is not a question of personality and you, know, you can't blame the man at the top for something like this mm. trump actually in 2018 put together a a, a, uh, uh, a pandemic plan um you know america has an organization solely devoted to looking at pandemics and they had alerted to this everyone knew in britain and america that there was going to be an asian pandemic of some sort plans were in place in 2019 congress passed a biodefense act so it's, it's not at the top that the problem lies, it's in the bureaucracy of an America, it's in, the, it's in the failure to implement these things, it's in the lack of coordination between the states and, and the federal government and not knowing whose job it is to do what. There's no mm -hmm. orchestrated plan going on there. So I think what it has exposed is, yes, land of liberty, but in a right mess. And certainly at the, I think there's an opportunity there for either Trump or Biden to make sorting that out one of the election platforms. Would that, does, does that sort of resonate with you, Andrew? I mean, well, 
Again, that's very typically American. Uh, we believe in ordered liberty, but we've always been a little bit short on the order uh, and big on the liberty. I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I think there's been a lot of bureaucratic screw ups, especially at the very beginning. But I'm actually kind of impressed. I'm impressed with uh, Trump and his team and the way they've actually acted, stripping out all the noise, stripping out, uh, as Rafe said, all the personality. Uh, you know, Trump's interests are very much aligned with common sense. He wants as few people to die as possible, but he wants the economy to come back as quickly as possible. And that seems to me to be the middle road that we should be uh, treading. In Michigan, where there was this de demonstration, and you have to remember, the demonstrations are getting a lot of press, but they're still very limited and very small. Uh, but in, yeah, in, in Michigan, where there was this demonstration, the Michigan governor uh, has been e extremely oppressive and extremely arrogant in her uses of her emergency powers. So what you're seeing is a reaction, uh, not an action. And that's, and that's important. I think what we have seen, I mean, places like New York have been incredibly badly managed. Uh, the mayor of New York has just not only been incompetent, but he has just uh, exacerbated any kind of sense of community relations. Uh, the people in New York want to stay home and keep safe because the flu has hit them so badly. But I think that, you know, we, we do have, because we are a huge country, and this is the thing, I, I lived in England for many, many years, and the hardest thing to convince Europeans of in general is just how huge this country is. I mean, England is the size of one of our states. It's the size of Oregon. I should say Britain is the size of Oregon. So when you say there's a lot of uh, bureaucratic snafus, there are, but there's just so much more uh, bureaucracy to be dealing with, and it's in so many different places. So I've been very impressed with the fact that Trump has kept federalism uh, first and foremost, that he has basically said, yes, we should stay safe, but yes, we also should keep the economy going. That seems to be the right way to go. And I think that uh, the states are each, each has, each state has to be judged on its own. John, are you impressed? Well, with, are you impressed with Trump? I mean, you know, obviously, the situation in in Britain, for example, and it's almost impossible to get what I would you would call a, you know, a half decent or impartial view actually of what's happening. I mean, we've got a a, me, a media here that's almost entirely anti-Trump. I mean, w what would you say? Would you agree with Andrew? Are you impressed with his performance? Well, of course, as you said, suicidal say that you approve of Trump any number of politicians, which I would, by the way, have to do. But nonetheless, I agree with uh, Andrew that, first of all, yes, Trump has acted as the head of a federal government uh, in a country in which a federal uh, system in which the states obviously are going to do most of the heavy lifting. Secondly, I'd add, he's been very careful to bring in the private sector again and again on this to encourage them to answer some of the, deal with some of the shortages, make sure that new equipment is going to be available. He's suggested, not always wisely perhaps, but as it turns out in most of these cases, correctly, that there are other ways of dealing with uh, the virus, that there are some um, cores which are not simply palliatives, and we should uh, expedite, speed up the process whereby we, uh, the regulatory process, whereby we make them available. I think that has has been to, has proved to be correct, even if in some cases it might seem a bit risky. Um, and to some degree, by the way, I think that's also true of Britain, where what you've had is a government's actually wanted to get people like Dyson to help and, and encourage them to do so. Uh, 
But the problem is that America is no longer a society which is united on the kind of government it should have. It's a divided society. There is a really quite a serious moral civil war that's going on uh, between people who look to the American constitution in the way Andrew's just been citing, but others who essentially really want a massive administrative state, which we have already actually extended uh, and made more powerful. And unfortunately, while the uh, crisis has actually uh, innovated, uh, not innovated, I'm sorry, um, done the opposite, but it's encouraged the private sector to be more active, it's also encouraged the expansion uh, and the respect for and the kind of, uh, well, toadying is too bad a word, but um, the subservience to the administrative state that, that many people um, really want to see become the norm in America. And I think there is a danger that at the end of this, uh, particularly if the Democrats win the presidency, um, the, the administrative state will have uh, got notched itself up uh, a few more um, uh, inches, more control over the, over the society. And I would regret that. When, when you it's said, often the result of crisis. When you say the administrative uh, state and the, and the support amongst some people for a hugely expanded one. I mean, when, when would you say that that actually started? Is that a relatively recent phenomenon? Well, no, I think, I would bow to Andrew here. Most people think it began with Roosevelt. Um, but on the other hand, in, in, and it was wound back a few times by the Eisenhower administration and so on, but it does have a, a, a way of um, it's going, to going up 10 points and being wound down five and then going up another 10 points when the next crisis occurs. So I think we, we now have to find some way of ensuring that it just doesn't become the way in which most people feel Americans should live. And I would say, by the way, the same is true for the Brits, because although America may now be the chief standard bearer um, of, 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 the, of the Magna Carta and the liberties associated with it, nonetheless, that tradition surely has not completely died in England. Uh, under Thatcher, it got a tremendous boost. And um, I think we want to see it uh, protected and revived. I think that there, it often depends who you're listening to or reading, but there are some people who think that in Britain we've sort of <clears throat> actually forgotten these things. So we, we, know, we no longer are taught about them, so we've kind of forgotten about them. I, I would agree with, with John that the private sector has been the, the, the stellar example of an, an industry working together across the board. I mean, you've got cases of Barber and Burberry offering to make PPE mm, gowns yeah. and so forth. Dyson getting involved in those ventilators, you know, Mercedes-Benz helping to get people off ventilators onto other breathing apparatus. That's been inspirational to see. The private sector, again, a champion of, uh, of, of people's life and liberty. Um, and undoubtedly, you know, Trump's getting a raw deal on all of this. People forget, you know, that he was the one who wanted to stop flights to, from China and got a huge amount of flack for that. And that's you know, conveniently forgotten by everyone who's now con condemning him. And I think Britain and America have had a rather bad press recently over death tolls, which simply is a crude analysis to try to compare them to Europe, given the fact that the populations are far larger. People don't actually look at these things in terms of deaths per million, in which case America is far below Britain, France, Italy and Spain. And, and Britain is still below um, European countries on a, per, on a per capita basis. And of course, Britain and America 
have much more ethnic diversity than European countries. And mm. we know that the highest risk groups are people from ethnic minorities. And yet nowhere do you see that in any of the analytics. Similarly, not to their credit, they're also the fattest nations in that comparison chart. And so, you know, if someone would actually try to analyze that out, yes. I think a lot of the attacks made on, on Trump and Johnson, um, who did start too late, has to be said, but they are, they are exaggerated and unfounded on that level. But certainly, if, you know, if I were Biden, um, I would, as John said, I would look to FDR if I wanted to, to, to offer up an alternative to Trump and appeal to those keen on a bigger state and offer a new New Deal. Mm -hmm. you know, we, we may not like it these days, but that basically was the hope that was given after the Great Depression in, in creating a safety net of socially and economically. And I think that is going to actually be one of the dividing lines that we'll see at this ele election. And a lot hangs in the balance based upon that. Can I ask you already, uh, this is a very, uh, I think, interesting thing we have with Brexit here. We had something called Brexit derangement syndrome, right? So, and you know what I'm going to ask. Uh, there is what can, it, this seems to be an entirely irrational ha hatred of, of Trump, the Trump derangement syndrome. Andrew, I mean, what do you think that shows? I mean, regardless of the pandemic, if you like, I mean, ongoing. It is not just about hating someone's politics, is it? Oh, no, it's not. And, and, and remember that there was uh, Bush derangement syndrome before this. Trump has amped it up because of his personality and his uh, brusqueness. But, but John is absolutely right. You know, the, the division in this country is no longer in the up until the 1970s and into the 1980s, the division in this country used to be between people saying, yes, we love our constitution and our tradition, but we would like a little bit more of a welfare state, a safety net to maintain uh, people in times of trouble. Uh, that, that was a rational debate. We are no longer in that debate. We are now in the debate whether the constitution should be operational at all. Uh, this week, um, this week, a uh, Harvard law professor and a law professor from, I think, the University of Arizona published an article in The Atlantic saying that the Chinese have been right, that censorship and surveillance uh, is absolutely necessary. Uh, and, and so we're really dealing with people who have lost the plot of America altogether. And as I, as I see it, what they had was they had this beautiful vision of globalism in which the elites were going to uh, run the world in their expertise. They were going to make a lot of money in their expertise, and they were going to pay the rest of us a universal income to sort of make us go away, uh, that our lives didn't have to have dignity or purpose or meaning. We just needed some cash in our pockets, and we'd be quiet while robots did all the work, and, uh, and they just sat around and thought great thoughts and basically invented the technology of the future. Trump has very much, uh, with his nationalism and his simple instinct uh, for the country, his instinct of love of country and his instinct of love of the traditions of the country, uh, he has just thrown a wrench in that operation. And you hear people talking about uh, our dislike of elites and experts as if there was something wrong with that and as if elites and experts had done such a great job. I mean, America has been in a war for 20 years in Afghanistan, and that was the elites and experts got us into that. Uh, we had for three years, our life expectancy was dropping because people were killing themselves at such a high rate that it was overtaking whatever medical advances there were. And that was simply despair because all of our jobs had been far farmed out to China and other places, and people were just dying in the middle of the country from meth addiction and other forms of despair. Something was terribly, terribly wrong that caused the people to rise up and send Trump to the White House, which they only just barely did. 
Uh, and, and not once, not once have any of the elites, any of the experts, including some of the elites on the right, not once has anyone said, what are they trying to tell us here? What have we done wrong? Is there some other voice that should be included? Uh, Donald Trump is a symptom. He is not the cause of this division. He is, he is the people who feel that they have not been heard, that their lives have been taken away, uh, that their voices have been taken away, that they are fired from their jobs for saying that men can be different from women. Uh, they're fired from their jobs for remarks they may have made personally on Facebook. Uh, they have lost their rights to uh, be themselves and to live their individual lives. And Trump was basically a cri de coeur, uh, you know, just a cry to, to be listened to, to give somebody a voice that would speak for those people. And Trump has done that, and that's what they hate him for. They hate him because he is a bowling ball that has rolled down into their perfect global vision and just knocked it askew. Let, let me say, can I talk about that here? Um, well, it seems to me that we are all sitting around this table members of the elites or an elite um, but we are traitors to our class and we recognize since we're in that class that um experts differ um that you if you got a good doctor saying you were going to die on thursday you'd ask for a second opinion and i think that that's true across the system and if you have a a problem like brexit uh, membership of the EU, that's composed of so many different expertises, so to speak, that you can't possibly be an expert on it. Now, what's the problem we have? I would put it this way, uh, responding to Andrew. Um, the elites managed to solve a problem um, which had long puzzled uh, many of them, and that is, how do you get rid of democracy without getting rid of democracy? And the answer is, you transfer more and more political decisions, which you declare to be terribly important, from democratic institutions accountable to the voters to non-democratic institutions accountable to themselves or to a general amorphous atmosphere of progressivism. And that's the problem. They, they did, they carried that out. And the rest of us kind of, couldn't quite work out what was going on. How come more and more times we complained about something, the politicians, the ministers, and the civil servants would say, I'm afraid there is nothing we can do that. In Britain, they'd say, well, that was a European decision. We had to accept it. In America, they'd say, well, that was the decision of the Supreme Court. That's all we can do. We must go along with it. We can't possibly, in a sense, change the law. Now, um, we didn't understand how this had happened, but we knew something was wrong. Trump came along and he articulated uh, these uh, feelings, but he didn't articulate them very well because that's not the kind of thing he does. He, what he does is he expressed powerfully emotions which people um, feel, but don't quite uh, make the case. It's up to therefore intellectuals and they've come forward in quite large numbers to begin to articulate um, in Britain and America, in Brexit and other places in Central Europe, to articulate the grievances of people who knew they were being cheated but couldn't work out how the three-card trick had been played on them. Absolutely, and certainly, just as Trump, you know, I'm reminded of G.K. Chesterton, for we are the people of England who have not spoken yet, and certainly Trump gave voice to the American people, um, the downtrodden, just as just as um, John and Andrew are saying, and of course we've seen that here too with, with Brexit, and certainly the attempt to erase the connection that the power levers between the public and, and the, the legislatures and the elected officials 
got to a point where it seemed as if the Glorious Revolution, which was all about parliaments taking power from the crown and in, in, in expanding democracy, we had our own revolution in terms of trying a, a battle between parliamentary sovereignty and the sovereignty of the people. And it came very close over the last year in, in terms of who would win that. And thankfully, because of, the, of, of you know, Boris Johnson's intervention at the end, we did win that. But the, the, the question remains, did we win the war or just a battle? And how long is this going to last? And of course, 2020 will, be one, will give us one indication in America, but it remains to be seen whether the elites you know, have been defeated um, in a certain sense, or whether they're just wounded and uh, seeing how they can come back. Um, but you know, but then in another sense, it's the same case in Europe. And of course, what uh, coronavirus has shown Europe is how how self-interested the member states of the European Union are when push comes to shove. Is it uh, Trump? Obviously, is onto a bit of a winner as well, isn't he? When he, he said quite recently, in fact, I think it was yesterday, uh, about the idea of tariffs on China. You know that somehow. There was, there was talk that somehow China is going to have to pay somehow. Uh, there, was, there was talk, I think, of non-repayment, uh, of debt repayments, but he said no to that, but that there should maybe be tariffs. Um, this is surely going to be a winner in the coming election, is it not? Oh, I, I think it definitely is. And, uh, and Biden's friendships with China and his, you know, this is something that Trump has been talking about a long time. And if you want to find the source of Trump derangement, it may well be, it may well start right here with his attacks, his continual attacks on China in the same way that Reagan upended the foreign policy consensus by saying, no, we don't have to um, maintain relations with the Soviet Union. We should beat them. We should defeat them in the Cold War. That was he said he was alone in saying that, except for Margaret Thatcher and the Pope. Uh, and, and nobody thought that that was possible. And it upended the wisdom of all the uh, poobahs in the State Department. Well, the same thing is true right now. China has uh, interacted and interwoven itself with our universities, our media, uh, and our press so completely that the idea that you can basically say, no, wait a minute, morally, this is a not a good country, that China is not a good country, we should not deal with them as moral equals, they are not our moral equals, they oppress their people terribly. The some of the stories that have been confirmed coming out of China sound like bad thriller novels. Uh, the harvesting of organs from people who dissent and from uh, you know disenfranchised groups in their prisons. I mean, this is the kind that uh, we've seen on TV, the oppression of the people in Hong Kong, and yet, and yet, nobody in the in a, the left wing press, by which I mean almost all the press in America, uh, is willing to come out and just say, you know, I may not like Donald Trump, but he has a point here. Uh, yesterday, the New York Times was attacking Trump for trying to find out how much of this virus was originated uh, with the laboratories in Wuhan. Uh, we've just seen again and again. They tell us if we call this the Chinese flu, as they say the Spanish flu, uh, that we're racist. Uh, so this is going to be a powerful, powerful narrative because the people hear this. They know they know what China is. They're not going to be fooled, I don't think, by the press. And Joe Biden, listen, <laughs> Joe Biden, they are trying their best. Joe Biden at this point is a hologram. You know, I'm, I'm not even sure he's actually there. I think he is a projection of the press and the left wing and the Democrat Party that is just a three dimensional placeholder. He himself said he's going to be a placeholder president. Uh, he can barely put an English sentence together. He is not being called on to defend himself against rape allegations, which had they been leveled against a Republican would be all the news. Uh, and his and his his relations with China and his friendliness toward China and his 
sun hunters, uh, profits from China are all going to come into question. And I just don't think the press is going to be able to keep it silent. Absolutely. And see, and the thing is that you know, Trump has actually been the only leader in the Western world to actually understand what's been happening over the last few years. And it's been so depressing embarrassing and actually sickening to see the docile nature of our European leaders when it comes to handling um, China, very happy to take its money and let it get itself embedded firmly into the infrastructure and the very backbone of, of, of Europe. And even to see the Conservative government, you know, willing to go along with Huawei until recently. But, you know, one wants, you know, you shake your head in disbelief because the reality is we are in a new Cold War. You know, China is the new Soviet Union, and anyone who thinks we're not in a Cold War now is, is going to be severely, mis you know, up for a, a rude awakening over the next few years. And Trump has been the only person to fully understand and recognize that. And so he's got every right to make that a key part of his uh, election, re-election platform to contrast himself with Biden, who's quite frankly a rum lot in comparison. What is, it, what is the fact that, <laughs> what is the, fact that uh, the Democrats have got Biden up? What, what does that say about the Democrat... Democratic Party. I mean, you know, it's it's. Is it actually going the same way as Labour Labour in Britain? Would you say is that what uh, John? Well, no. I doing rather well, unfortunately. Apart from the fact that Biden is uh, is obviously a bad candidate, and uh, in, in almost any other circumstances, wouldn't be making it uh, to the candidacy, and may not yet, and may yet not do so. But the fact is, um, it's controlling one of the houses of Congress. Um, it's, it, it did well in the last elections. It may do well. It may win the, uh, the Senate this one. I think it won't, but it may. And um, of course, it's bad though he is, Biden is slightly leading Trump in the polls. I don't think that will turn out to be, happen on the day, but that's another matter. So yes, you've got to take them seriously. Why is that? It's because they essentially have created an electorate, partly by immigration, partly by other methods, in which they are um, representatives of what they think of as a new America, a different America, um, an America which will in future be less self-reliant, less independent-minded, um, less liberal in the true sense of the word, um, and more worshipful of big government, which gives them free stuff. And unfortunately, that's the way um, there's a, always a, a, a strong uh, appetite for that kind of, of policy. So I don't dismiss them. I think they're really serious, uh, a serious threat to the kind of, of, of America that, for example, Andrew is, so to speak, representing here around the table. Speaking of a, a kind of America, uh, this really brings us on to, to what we would call the culture wars, if you like. Um, and you've already alluded to it in different ways, actually. But when Andrew was talking about what you know, Trump was saying, what people really thought, and and, and they didn't have an outlet, um, do you think that you know that this pandemic will sort of wipe that away once and for all? And when I when I talk about the culture wars, I'm talking about the identity politics, the kind of the woke culture. You know, do you think that because it's obviously gone off of the pay, the front page for a while? You know, but I, I wonder whether it's so entrenched that it will just simply return, whether we're actually seeing it creeping back anyway. Do you think that what's happening now will really make a difference, Andrew? One of the things I think that uh, John is hitting upon that really has to be focused on is the difference between intellectual power and what we'll call mechanical power. 
the left is out of ideas. The reason they have this candidate who's essentially a walking houseplant and he's being opposed, his, his chief opposition is a 102 year old communist who's spouting Marxist ideas who really doesn't realize the Soviet Union has fallen is because they are literally out of ideas. They do not have an idea that, that pre, you know, that's it's not from the 19th century and all those ideas since the 19th century have failed in practice so they have nothing intellectually to offer a long time ago in the 50s or 60s a very famous critic named lionel trilling said there is no intellectual life on the right well that is now true of the left all the intellection is being done on the right all the thinking arguing debating is being done on the right however they have implanted a tremendous mechanism for enforcing their points of view which is of course giving away free stuff is one of them that always is good. But as John said, the administrative state and bad Supreme Court decisions that have given uh, a tremendous power to the administrative state is part of it. And now you have the left arguing that that's be even better uh, than the Constitution. And also you have civil rights law. There's a wonderful a new book, an important new book by Christopher Caldwell called The Age of Entitlement, which traces how civil rights law has now set up an alternative constitution and it's enforced by lawsuits. So if if you say, if I, for instance, go on the air and make a comment like men and women are different and some left wing uh, website comes after me for that, it's possible that my sponsors will abandon me because they're afraid of being sued, not because they're afraid of losing uh, money from their customers because their customers all know men and women are different. They're afraid that they will be sued as a civil rights violation and that that their, their support of me will be proof in that lawsuit. And that has worked in the past. So the left being empty of ideas has set up a tremendous mechanism of power, which also includes their takeover of our academies, our entertainment industry and our news industry uh, that really is separate from their ideas. And so what we're going to see and what we did see with Trump is, is the, the fact that some of our ancient mechanisms like the Electoral College saved us from the absolute steamrolling effect of this mechanism they've put in, in place. And there's a, a very powerful open question of whether Trump is canny enough and smart enough to start to dissemble the mechanism that they have built, because that's the key thing. That is what Reagan failed to do. Uh, and I don't know whether Trump is going to do it. We really have to start to reverse the kind of laws. Maybe he did it with his Supreme Court appointments. We'll see. But that's the difference. You have yeah. to understand they're not winning on ideas. They're winning on pure power. That's absolutely right. Can right. I just give... Basically, what's, I mean, yeah. what's happening... That's just like... Uh, sorry, sorry, John. Sorry, after you, John. Yeah. After you, John. Go on. Oh, oh. Uh, thank you very much. Um, well, I just was going to say, in the last week, there's been an example of what Andrew has just described, namely the left running out of ideas, but at the same time having the power uh, to, to make sure that it, so to speak, wins. And that was last week, Michael Moore and Jeff Gibbs from the extreme left brought out a movie um, um, it's called Planet of the Humans, which argues that the uh, I, that that for the left to rely on the renewables industry to provide um, uh, energy without damaging the atmosphere is uh, is a is a myth, a delusion, uh, and furthermore, delusion which has been used by ruthless capitalists to make millions out of the delusion. Now, this strikes at the very heart of the argument that the left, the moderate left, has been making. So it's an interesting fact that this happened. First of all, the movie is quite a good movie 
from the standpoint of telling a good story and making a, well, a sort of honest argument. It comes up with a ridiculous solution, namely, essentially, we have to have fewer human beings. Well, I don't see you can achieve that in any decent way myself, other than relying on people to have fewer babies voluntarily. And I don't think that's enough for socialists generally. But the point is that this film is a news item. I mean, it's Michael Moore, a strong left winger, rejecting the orthodoxy of the left, making a film that makes a good argument. And you would think everybody would be talking about it. Well, a lot of people are because three million people watched it free on the internet. Mm. But you can't find any references to it in a lot of news stories in, the, in Google and elsewhere, except people are demanding that the program, that the, the film be banned. So on the one hand, even the slightest deviation from the left's position becomes impossible to get a hearing for in a normal way. Mm. And that, of course, is, is a society in which honest argument and debate cannot persist if even on the left um, people get shouted down for saying things that the whole left believed 10 minutes before. Mm. And that's of course because the godless left have reverted to type and have made their ideology into religious faith and they are zealots and anyone who you know who varies one iota from scripture is going to be cast out as, as, a, as a blasphemer and a heathen and so you're seeing done to Michael Moore what we've seen happen to Jermaine Greer and all these other figures of the old left who are now being uh, cannibalized by their own. Um, and for me, one of the great tragedies of, uh, or potential uh, tragedies of coronavirus is that we may have lost or we may lose the opportunity that we had up until a couple of months ago, both in Britain and America, to actually reverse that long march through the institutions. Mm. Because, you know, there have been two power sources in, in both countries, and governance in this country was, you know, conservatives are the natural party of governance, but in all the institutions of education and the civil service and in the media, you've got the soft power of the left, which is arguably more influential. Mm. And they've basically never engaged with each other properly. And so with Dominic Cummings, I think more than Boris Johnson actually behind the mm -hmm. scenes, we really had a great chance to try to reverse that. And I just wonder in this country, you know, having expended so much of our personal finances, whether we'll be able mm -hmm. to live up to our promises to the former Labour Party voting and members of the Red Wall and elsewhere to prove the credentials um, of living up to their expectations and providing them with the infrastructure and everything that they needed. And that may actually de derail what we thought were 10 years where we could actually try to you know, re reverse that trend. And we may find something similar in America because you know, America has you know, full employment, had a, a mm. deregulation, boosted confidence in business. You had such a good situation there. The foreign policy of, of Trump turned Obama on its head and was so encouraging. And uh, you know, nobody since Coolidge had actually delivered on their campaign promises more. You know, people forget that. And that's something that people look, look at when it comes to election times. And I think it would be a great shame if those two unique opportunities were, um, you know, became a, had to be abandoned because of all of this. Yes, frustrated. I mean, do, <clears throat> do you think the outlook is bleak? I mean, that, that sounds like a bleak outlook to me, actually, though. Um, you know, well, that there was a chance, um, but that that's now sort of not been squandered, but frustrated by what's been happening. No, I, I mean, I think, listen, conservatives are usually conservatives because they have a talent for seeing disaster that proceeds from change. They have a, a talent for building the, the constellation from any change to complete disaster. But no, I, I think we actually are in a very, uh, in, an interesting balance. We're kind of on the razor's edge. Uh, I have never heard, because of all the things we're talking about, 
uh, the left has become completely isolated from the voice of the people altogether. I have never seen, I have never seen this kind of pre-French Revolution arrogance coming from the, the elites in America before, but I'm seeing it now. I watch the late night comedians and these guys who make literally $15 million a year to go on TV and make jokes are sneering at people who want to go back to work because they're starving to death and their businesses are, their small businesses are collapsing and they're making fun of them and they're making jokes about them. And this, this has got to resonate. I mean, I think that um, the the elites have become so separated because they because they have isolated power in mechanisms rather than ideas. Mm -hmm. The elites have managed to become so separated from the ordinary human being who walks the street and lives and dies and pays his taxes uh, that they now sound very much as if they should be wearing those long curly French wigs from the 18th century. Uh, and I think that 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 is going to have an effect. At, I hope at the polls. You know, it's funny. I. John was saying this before. I, I am an elite in that sense. I mean, I, my happy place is to drink Chardonnay and discuss literature. That's what I want to be doing. But it's not a leap of Christ-like vision for me to imagine that the guy who is currently delivering the groceries that are keeping this old man alive also has a life and also has an inner vision and also has opinions that deserve just as much recognition as mine. And yet in America, that which used to be the standard, it used to define our movie business, it used to define our press, it used to define our intellectual life, is now gone and has been replaced by some kind of European continental aristocracy of mind uh, that simply does not believe in the people anymore. As a matter of fact, I used to argue that um, America is the only genuine social democracy in the world mm -hmm. because um, it's a democracy in which everybody feels they have a right to an opinion and that they don't have to defer to everyone else's opinion. Now, that's less true than it used to be. Well, it's true, less true today than, say, in 1960, uh, but it's still, still true. And I think to answer the question about how we get out of this current situation, I suppose, electorally in the next few years in, in the UK, I think we have to say this, that if we leave the, uh, if we actually do in every full sense leave the European Union at the end of the year, and we are emerging at the same time from the pandemic uh, shutdown, and we have to revive the economy and get things going again. I think the way, I think Boris could actually do this. I think he could do it by appealing to the British people on the lines of, we've just had two great crises dumped in our laps. Um, we have to handle them alone and we have to handle them in ways that revive, that on the basis of greater liberty, greater initiative, greater opportunity for everyone in the country. And that's what we're going to do. And so instead of re re leaning back into the arms of the administrative state, he actually goes out and uh, simply says, do you have it in you? Uh, under Thatcher, um, we discovered that the old virtues, the, the, the vigorous virtues, as she called them, had been latent. They hadn't died in us. And they revived quite quickly. It only took about five years before we were again the fourth largest economy in the world. Maybe the, the, the same virtues plus the virtues of love of country and desire to excel as a nation as well as people. Um, I think those, those vigorous, those kind of virtues, you might call them the patriotic as opposed to the economic virtues, I think they're still in us. And I think that they can be brought out by bold leadership.
you've got that ability. Uh, John, you've put a spring in my step for the weekend. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time tonight. Uh, Andrew Claven, John O'Sullivan, Rafe Hadelmanku. It's been a, a great conversation. I do hope that maybe we can get together again later in the year, maybe around the time of that election and have a talk about it. So uh, thank you very much once again. Uh, that's it for Counterculture this week. So uh, I hope to see you next time. And please do subscribe, won't you? Thanks very much. Thank <laughs> you.